Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. How's it going, Susanna? Hey, Joe. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm getting there. It's a good day. It's going to stay that way. Okay, so the pandemic is a pandemic, so it's just been terrible for, you know, whole litany of reasons that we don't need to recount here. But one of the things is made really clear to me is how much we all depend on good science, right? I think everybody who's not a scientist like me has kind of come to that realization too. And it's really underscored how science at its best and scientists at their best can just be so inspiring. The best scientists possess this blend of creativity and hard-earned expertise and drive that you just don't see very often. And to me, this conversation with Dimpy Shaw really exemplified this. Dr. Shaw is an American Cancer Society research grantee, and she's assistant professor of epidemiology at Mays Cancer Center, home to UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. It wasn't long after the pandemic hit that we got an email from Dr. Shaw about something she and her colleagues had started called the COVID-19 and Cancer Consortium. Susanna, can you help us understand why this is so cool? Absolutely. Our conversation with Dimpy just exemplifies what can happen when a group of incredibly dedicated scientists and clinicians and patients come together to really address a problem. And the problem here is that we have this acute lack of knowledge about the impact of COVID-19 on cancer patients. And so this group of individual researchers came together, as you said, to form this consortium. And it's huge. It involves over 100 centers and just an enormous number of people, all really dedicated to addressing this this really challenging space. And one of the things that Dempy said is that what would normally take two years, they launched and conducted in a month, right? So in a month, they analyzed patient records from over a thousand patients, cancer patients, who also had COVID-19 infection and were able to share with the world from this massive team effort, this really desperately needed information about the impact of COVID-19 on cancer patients, the increased risk that these patients may have, increased mortality that they may have, impact of comorbidities and being immunocompromised. And what we can take from this really scary situation are the beginning of what I think we can think about as um, rules, flexible rules, but still rules and guidelines to help us keep cancer patients safe. Because we know that the risk of COVID-19 is not equitably distributed among patients. And that's especially true for cancer patients. So I'm grateful not only to Dimpy, but to her colleagues and certainly to all the healthcare providers who uh, came together to provide this really enormous amount of information, which is going to launch just an incredible enhancement, I think, in our understanding of COVID-19 in cancer patients. Hi, Dimpy. How are you today? I'm doing good, Susanna. Thank you. How are you doing? I am doing well, and we are super excited to have an opportunity to talk to you about your work. So if you're ready, we're going to dive in. Absolutely. Yes, do. All right. So 
I know that you are a member of what seems to be a very recently formed uh, COVID-19 and cancer consortium. So I think a good place to start, just help us understand why was this group formed? Maybe what do you hope to accomplish? Uh, sure. Um, so the COVID-19 and cancer consortium or uh, CCC-19 as we call it, uh, was formed to best understand how the novel virus uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 affects cancer patients now and in the future. Uh, this is a collaborative effort which grew as a grassroots uh, uh, collaboration. It began organically and now the membership has grown to over 100 organizations in the United States and Canada. Um, the first, it is one of the first registry efforts uh, which started to collect information on patients with cancer and COVID-19, and currently it's the largest uh, of its kind with a global reach. What we aim to do with this effort is uh, to collect granular, uniformly organized information to uh, stimulate translational science and also to arm our uh, treating providers uh, with the most comprehensive and significantly accurate evidence, um, scientifically accurate evidence as rapidly as possible on cancer patients who are infected with this new virus. Oh, fantastic. This is so timely and necessary. Um, I'm so impressed. So uh, over 100 organizations, and you said you have a global reach with a goal of really collecting information, which is gonna help us to understand what it's like for cancer patients who have COVID-19. Um, and as, as you so astutely said, help us understand implications now and, and in the future. One thing I'm really interested in is that you said that one of the goals of this consortium is to collect information, right? So that, and you were trying to arm those frontline healthcare workers, our oncology providers with evidence-based research. And so you've recently done just that. You are a lead author on a paper that was published in Lancet just this week. So congratulations, that's wonderful. The title of this paper is Clinical Impact of COVID-19 on Patients with Cancer. Um, so I think I, it would be helpful for us to just kind of understand what the motivations were for this study in particular. Were there things about maybe cancer and cancer patients that make it so important for us to understand the impact of COVID-19 on this population? Thank you for that question and thank you um, uh, for acknowledging the publication. Uh, it was a massive team effort and uh, we are very proud that we are able to help the you know, clinical providers uh, with the information that was so desperately needed. Um, so, uh, you know, to go back over the past decade, we have uh, started to realize the importance of respiratory viral infections in our patients with cancer. Um, you know, most of these viruses, they cause common cold in general population, but when the patients who have cancer are affected, then uh, there is significant morbidity and mortality associated with those infections. Um, you know, cancer patients, especially those who are actively on treatment, they have high levels of contact with the healthcare system. And, you know, despite our heroic efforts to reduce the viral transmission or the infection spread, 
you know, in these shared spaces, um, the cancer patients still have uh, an elevated risk of the exposure to the virus. And, you know, additionally, um, majority of cancer patients, they are immunocompromised, you know, either through their um, uh, anti-cancer treatment or the cancer itself, or uh, perhaps, you know, having some supportive drugs such as uh, corticosteroids. Um, so they, they are also often uh, more than 60 years old. They have a higher incidence of common health conditions or what we call comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, obesity. So all of these factors, you know, they, they put cancer patients um, in a high risk profile for any kind of uh, viral infection. But we had this acute lack of knowledge and, you know, the concern for extreme vulnerability uh, uh, because of CC, uh, because of COVID-19 that CCC19 aimed to understand the impact of COVID-19 in uh, patients with cancer. And that's what we did in our first uh, released analysis of uh, 928 patients who had lab-confirmed uh, infections. Wow. So that's such an interesting dichotomy that you presented, that we have a patient population that's really at need, right? You, you indicated all these things that we think about for cancer patients, that they are immunocompromised, they have maybe more touch points would be a way for us to say it with the healthcare system than just the average American, the average person. And we know from your work and, and others that infections in cancer patients you mentioned the common cold can look quite different than infections in an individual who does not have cancer. And so we, we think about that in the context of increased morbidity and mortality. And so despite all of that, what you faced, you and your colleagues faced, as you looked at this picture for cancer patients in the face of COVID-19 was a real lack of knowledge. And so you started this study. So I, I think it would be interesting for us to understand, for those of us who don't do these kinds of large-scale studies, if you can just tell us about it. What did you do? Uh, how do you conduct a study like this? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, uh, this study was started with one tweet on uh, Twitter. And this was uh, from one of our uh, resident fellows, uh, Dr. Akash Desai. He, he tweeted about uh, you know, the impact of uh, COVID and how this would affect uh, our patients with cancer. And from that, it has snowballed into this massive global, uh, you know, uh, this is all voluntary work. So this is global uh, collaboration between different cancer centers, community partners, as well as uh, academic centers. Um, and uh, everyone came together and um, Generally, this would take us two years. I do have my respiratory viral infection consortium. It took us two years to get that started um, for studying different kinds of uh, uh, respiratory viruses. But for COVID-19, because of the massive scale that it has impacted, um, this study was launched and started and the data was collected within the first month of its uh, start date. And what we did is, uh, for this study, we analyzed all the records um, with laboratory-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infections in patients with cancer, um, irrespective of the type of cancer. 
that were entered in the database before the first data log, uh, which was within a month of opening the registry. So our first analysis um, looked at pre-specified potentially prognostic clinical variables, which have shown previously to have uh, an impact on, um, uh, on worse outcomes. And our primary endpoint was 30-day all-cause mortality. But we also looked at a key secondary endpoint, which was composite of death, mechanical ventilation, ICU admission, or having a severe illness that required hospitalization. Wow. And just how can you share with us how many patients were involved and maybe how many centers that I think would also be an interesting thing for us to understand? So, yes, uh, the first data log and the first publication had 100 centers. We have 70 co-authors who uh, helped us, you know, come together and um, generate this data and draft the manuscript. Um, and this, in this included data from uh, more than 1,000 patients with either presumptive or confirmed uh, COVID diagnosis. And, um, you know, for, uh, for cleaner analysis, uh, for the modeling purposes, we only included those who had uh, laboratory confirmation of the virus. So that were um, 928 patients. Wow, that's incredibly impressive that in such a short period of time, and I say this as a scientist, knowing, as you said, how long it can take us to evaluate and reevaluate and arrange all the conversations and writing to put together an effort like this so quickly between 100 centers with analytics on over 1,000 patients. That truly is a Herculean effort. So congratulations. I'm, I'm so impressed and so grateful. And, and I think I speak on behalf of the entire cancer community when I say this fill such a void and will continue to. So this is really wonderful. And just help me to clarify one piece. So for the average listener, for all of us who don't think about epidemiological studies every day like you do, you gather together a group of colleagues and you're interested in studying this group of patients. And for you, this group of patients were cancer patients. And as you said, um, you weren't particular about the type of cancer. These were cancer patients to enroll in this study who were also diagnosed with COVID-19. And then you ask questions about what happened to them. Um, what, what was their experience with COVID-19 like? Um, did they have to be on a respirator? Um, were there other comorbidities associated with their disease? Um, did they die from COVID-19? And then you were able to analyze that data on those thousand patients and make some conclusions. Is that a reasonable layperson summary of what you did? Absolutely. Um, the, the only difference, uh, you know, or, or the correction I would add is we did not, um, you know, talk to the patients. We, what we did is looked at their medical records uh, because that, that it would be impossible to consent 1,000 patients in, within a month. So all of this data is actually provided by healthcare providers who are treating cancer patients who have COVID-19 infection. And we look at their medical charts and we collect, um, and, and that was another thing, we have IRB approval, uh, which was ex uh, exempt, which collects uh, only de-identified data. So there is no uh, identifiable information collected. So. Everything is done uh, by the healthcare providers and they provide us uh, uh, data from the, their medical charts. 
you know, to me, it makes what you're doing even more impressive. And, and when I say you, I mean you and all your colleagues, because that means that all those individuals who are on the front lines taking care of COVID patients, and in this case, COVID patients who are also cancer patients, they were and are extraordinarily busy and stressed. And we just owe such a debt of gratitude. I mean, they these are the nurses and social workers and doctors who are really not only paying attention to the accuracy of the information in those charts, but then being willing to take the extra steps to share that information for this study, for the greater good. So what a really wonderful community effort. That's, it's not lost on me, just um, how big this effort was. It's really impressive. Can, are there things that you could share with us um, that maybe the findings that were really the most pivotal to you and, and kind of what you think about this research and how, how you'll next move forward. Because as you said, it's, these implications are not only for the current cancer patients, but COVID will be with us. And so it, it also has implications down the road. Yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the you know the enormous effort that has gone into this product, and it it makes us so proud and and feels so good to be part of this consortium because you can actually see the selflessness, you know, of all the providers that are yes caring for the patients, but they they are so interested and they would really like to have the evidence based guidelines, you know, to help care for their patients. So, I, I'm honored and I'm humbled every time, you know, I'm part of any work with this consortium. And um, you are right uh, also that, you know, COVID-19 is here to stay with us. Um, so we have to learn more. Um, this is the very first step. And, you know, some of the findings uh, from this study um, have uh, have been beneficial uh, to the providers because they did provide some of the burning questions, if you will, of, you know, how do we care for the patients? So, and, and how does uh, COVID-19 really look like in our patients? So the first and foremost, uh, you know, finding was that uh, the 30-day all-cause mortality was 13%. Now, this is twice as high as compared to the global average reported by John Hopkins. Um, you know, but it is not uniformly distributed. So some groups where we had eco performance status of zero, that means, you know, they, um, they were ambulatory or they, they were, there was no bedridden uh, aspect involved. And those who didn't have any comorbidities, there was 0% mortality. So active fit patients did not experience any mortality, but those who were, um, having ECOG performance status of two or more, that is, you know, they had at least 50% uh, bedridden uh, status, they had 85% mortality. So we have to understand that, you know, death is not equally distributed uh, uh, across the entire spectrum of cancer. Uh, what we also identified that older age, male sex, uh, having two or more health conditions which required active therapy, you know, such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, or any kind of uh, former smoking status was associated with a higher death rate. Uh, Cancer-specific variables, what we identified is, uh, again, eco performance status of two or higher, 
or having an active uh, measurable cancer. Uh, in patients who had progressive cancer, they had five-fold increased uh, risk of dying within 30 days compared to those who were in remission. And, um, you know, the combination of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin uh, was also associated with a higher death rate. Um, although we could not rule out, you know, the imbalances because of confounding uh, by indication or severity of disease when these drugs were prescribed. So those are some of the things that we would like to explore more in our next study. Wow, that's a lot. So if I were a caregiver or healthcare provider or a cancer patient listening to this, I mean, a lot of that is, is a little is scary, right? Increased mortality and challenges around a combination of health conditions that increase mortality. So none of that is incredibly surprising, but it does present a, a challenge slash opportunity for not only cancer patients and their caregivers, but for healthcare providers. So is, is one of the opportunities that came from your study, the ability to suggest strategies that uh, we can systematically put in place to decrease COVID-19 related risk for cancer patients. That, that's right. Uh, yes. So, you know, uh, in our NCI designated uh, maize cancer center at UT Health San Antonio, along with, you know, um, many, uh, most of the cancer centers, um, we have clear rules in place about how to care for patients to keep them safe. Uh, during COVID-19. It, it is very scary to have COVID-19 if you have existing cancer. But again, um, we have to understand that the risk is not equally distributed. So, you know, each individual has a different risk profile and that needs to be considered. Um, furthermore, uh, you know, um, our cancer center, as well as other cancer centers, they continue to treat patients throughout the pandemic and it's still open, you know, for patient screenings, tests and regular appointments because um, these are life-saving uh, modalities for our patients. So I think taken together, what these results suggest that, you know, fit patients with cancer and few comorbidities can and should proceed with appropriate anti-cancer treatment. Uh, whereas those who have uh, poor performance status or have progressing cancer, they need to have more thoughtful conversation uh, with their oncology providers about risk versus benefit of uh, anti-cancer treatment. Uh, it's extraordinarily helpful, I think, for healthcare providers and for cancer patients just to have a starting place for those conversations and to be able to consider where they are in their disease what are their risks? And um, I'm really grateful for, for this work and look forward to all the other things that, that will come from this study. Um, I, I think there's an interesting tangent I'd like to make before I let you go. Um, and that is that your American Cancer Society grant is, and you indicated this earlier in our conversation, it's actually focused on identifying cancer patients who are at higher risk for a different type of infection, for developing viral pneumonia um, and specifically following stem cell transplant. So I think one of the things that would be really interesting for our listeners is to help, help us understand how 
that works? How is a scientist who is thinking about risk for viral pneumonia following stem cell transplant, how maybe does or help us to understand the relationship between that study and your participation in this consortium? So I think the, the bottom line I'd love to know is, did your American Cancer Society funded research maybe impact your understanding of COVID-19 in cancer patients? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I, that is a great question, and I'm so glad uh, you asked me that. Um, you know, ACS has provided me with protected time and training to conduct research on respiratory viral infections in patients with cancer. Um, you know, by funding my mentor, Teresa Scholar Grant. And I'm able to utilize my training and dedicated time to be part of the steering committee uh, for CCC19, where I provide support, guidance, and oversight of progress and strategic future directions for the consortium. I'm also co-leading the Epidemiology and Statistics Committee to provide expertise on the COVID-19 cancer projects. Um, by supporting investigators in designing innovative and methodologically robust studies to understand the impact of COVID-19 on cancer. And, uh, you know, we are in charge of ensuring applications of uh, rigorous epidemiological and statistical methods for reproducible projects. So, uh, you know, in partnership with Vanderbilt, uh, my team at UTESCA, uh, we ensure the highest accuracy and integrity of data generated from multiple centers and making it available for various projects. So all of this has been possible because of my training on respiratory viruses. And yeah, I have I have published uh, systematic reviews uh, where we showed that a lot of host risk factors or uh, patient-related factors are very similar across respiratory viruses. So although the outcomes are different, but the risk uh, risk factors remain same across the spectrum. So having that training really uh, prepared me to be ready for this, um, you know, for these projects and to take this challenge uh, head on. And so I would like to thank ACS for, you know, providing this support to an early investigator like me. Uh, thank you again. Well, we have been thrilled with everything you've done and are so excited for the opportunities that you have moving into this space and for the incredible impact you and your colleagues are making. I just have one last question and and that's around a, a special group of listeners to our podcast. So many of our listeners are cancer patients or survivors and caregivers. Is there a, a specific message you would like to share with this group? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think cancer patients can stay home if they do not have to go out. Uh, practice social distancing, wear a mask, and avoid larger groups. Um, these are similar uh, recommendations that we also provide uh, for general population, but specifically for cancer patients, it's important. Uh, those who have active cancer, especially those who are older or have one or more health conditions, they should be particularly careful. Uh, fortunately, our study showed that simply receiving anti-cancer treatment did not increase the risk. So it's generally safe for most cancer patients to receive their treatment and um, they should definitely uh, consider, you know, continuing their screening procedures, their anti-cancer treatments because that actually saves lives. And um, if they have uh, some of these high-risk uh, factors or high-risk uh, profile, 
they should definitely discuss with their uh, care providers about, again, risk versus benefit for receiving the treatment. Well, thank you, Dimpy. We are really grateful to have these evidence-based guidelines, and I think I think I have the title for your next paper. It should be, it started with a single tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great idea. I'll bring it back to the consortium. Well, it's just really impressive that this this enormous body of work has come together so quickly by so many people and will go on to um, impact thousands and thousands. So thank you. And um, we'll be in touch. Take care, Dimpy. Thank you.